Here, let me invite the rest of you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're going to continue our journey through this remarkable story titled Ruth that's positioned in the Old Testament. So find your way to Ruth chapter 4, and that's what we're going to be uh, looking at and camping out on here in a few moments. There's a guy by the name of Leon Bloy who was a French philosopher, and he grew up in a home that wasn't very supportive of the Christian faith and a home that wasn't uh, very kind towards the Christian church. And so he grew up in a church that was uh, a home that was quite anti-Christian, anti-church. And so he grew up kind of jaded. But then late in life, he experienced a conversion. His life was redeemed as he came to faith in Jesus. Now, what tends to happen when somebody who meets Christ late in life What tends to happen, those who come to faith in Jesus later in life, they have a tendency to be able to see things about the nature of the Christian life with a bit more clarity than perhaps some of us who grow up in Christian circles or grow up exposed to the church or maybe have had faith for a long time. Well, that was certainly the case for this guy as he began to observe uh, the Christian church and he began to observe Christian practices around him and he began to study the scriptures and It led him to make some provocative observations about the church, to make some provocative statements about what it means to be a Christian. And one of the things he said that has perhaps left the deepest imprint on me of all the things that he said, it was this. He said, any Christian who is not a hero is a pig. Any Christian who is not a hero is a pig. Now, what do you think he means by that? What do you think he means by that observation, by that statement? Any Christian who is not a hero is a pig. Well, I think he's getting after the effect our redemption should have on our lives. You see, being a Christian, that means you are a man or a woman who's been redeemed by the graceful sacrifice of a self-giving God. That you've been loved like crazy. And to be loved by a sacrificial, self-giving God of redemption... Being loved that way should move us and empower us to live that way. What it means is that Christians suddenly, in light of our redemption and in light of the way in which we've been loved, all of a sudden we're not, we're moving towards, we, towards where we don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, we're considering other people more significant than ourselves that we're living our lives, not just looking out for our own interests, but considering the interests of others, that's one of the effects redemption should have on the human heart. That's what heroes do. Heroes are concerned for the welfare and the benefit and the blessing and the flourishing of others. But pigs aren't like that, are they? Pigs are only concerned about their own appetite. Pigs only want to eat. They only want to consume. They're not doing much to contribute to those around them. So there's a big difference between being a hero and a pig. You see, as you and I are redeemed by God, and we are at the same time released into the world to serve as tangible representatives of his character, that we are to be instruments of redemption, catalysts for gospel-saturated life change in our city and in this world, that his redemption of us should flow through us and how we minister to and love and serve those around us. And when you step into Ruth chapter four, you're gonna find this dynamic at play. As we move to the final chapter of this remarkable story, we begin to discover how redemption is the main theme of this book. 
As you step out of chapter three and into chapter four, you're gonna find the word redeem or redemption or or redeemer popping up 13 times in this chapter alone, making it clear that Ruth is about redemption. Now, I suspect you know what redemption is. You you live in a culture that likes to use the word redemption, and we like to talk about being redeemed. It's like the college student who struggled all quarter long to pass their tests and to get papers turned in on time, but then they come to the end of the quarter, and they're given a final exam, but they ace the final, and they walk away from that moment saying, man, that that final was my redemption. Had that final not happened, I, I would have not... I would have failed the entire class. I would have failed the course. Or maybe you watch football and you've seen that star receiver drop eight passes in one game, putting the team in a jeopardized position on the brink of losing the game. But then at the very last second, he catches a miraculous touchdown pass in the end zone, winning the game. What's happening there is, in a sense, that receiver is redeeming himself. He's making up for what he had dropped. He's making up for what he had lost. That's what redemption is. Redemption is about coming to a point where what is on the verge of being lost is suddenly regained. Something's on the verge of being lost forever, being restored, being redeemed, being regained. And if there was ever a family in need of redemption, it was these two women, Naomi and Ruth, that are talked about in this book. If there was ever a family in need of redemption, it was this family tied to Naomi and Ruth. You remember how the book of Ruth begins. In fact, the book of Ruth begins with Naomi following her husband's faithless lead to a foreign territory where he'd be surrounded by foreign gods only to die there, leaving her a widow. But over the course of that time, Naomi's two sons married two Moabite women, but 10 years after that, they died as well, leaving Naomi a widow with no children in a foreign land. But she had two daughters-in-law, and when she decided to return back to her hometown of Bethlehem, one of those ladies decides not to go with Naomi, thinking it would be too much for her to do so, but then there was one. There was a devoted woman named Ruth who decides to relocate her life, devoting herself to her mother-in-law, and they return to Bethlehem. But they return to Bethlehem having experienced tremendous loss and tremendous suffering. They return to Bethlehem in need of redemption. These two women suffered a lot, and it's been said that suffering is essentially pain plus the awareness that a person's value or worth is being threatened. This is what makes human beings different from animals. You know, animals can hurt, but human beings suffer because human beings not only experience pain, human beings experience pain with the awareness of being of, of some type of value, of some type of worth, and when that value and that worth is being threatened by pain, that compounds into suffering and it makes everything worse. Well, this is where Naomi and Ruth are when they return to Bethlehem. They are suffering. Their worth, their value is under attack. They are vulnerable and exposed to living lives that are marked by two things. Living lives that are marked by insecurity on one hand and insignificance on the other. And the reason for that is because back in the day, a person's security and a person's significance was tied to two things. It was tied to their ability to own some land and to be secure in land, but then it was also tied to their ability to procreate, to lineage. And so when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, they don't have that anymore. 
They've lost their husbands, so their sense of security is now has been taken away. And in some ways, their sense of significance has been taken away because it doesn't seem that their family line is going to continue so that if Naomi and Ruth die, it will be as though they never existed. Because land and lineage is where security and significance was tied back in the day. Now, I know we live in a world where land and lineage don't really determine our significance. It doesn't really account for all of our security, but we do live in a world where we're cut from the same existential cloth as those two ladies. That each and every one of us desire security and each and every one of us desire significance. But what happens is we tie our security and our significance to things that can come under attack, things that are vulnerable, things that can be taken away. And if we're not careful, if we're attaching our significance and our security to those types of things, when the day comes and they are taken away, we may lose ourselves and we may spiral into suffering. See, land and lineage determine that for them, and I'm not sure what determines it for you, but I assure you there are places you are looking to right now to determine your security and your significance and all of it is an indication that you are a human being who, has long, who longs to last. You long to last. And because of that, we live in a fallen world where everything in this world is vulnerable. Everything in this world can be taken away. And so we have to figure out, okay, where is true security and true significance to be found? Where can our longing to last be redeemed? Is it possible for that to be redeemed in a full and forever kind of sense? And I think this is what the book of Ruth begins to illustrate for us. And so when you step into Ruth chapter four, it is interesting because in chapters one, two, and three, the narrator has been ratcheting up the tension been revealing their need of redemption, saying these two women are in need to be redeemed. They've lost their security. They've lost their significance. They need something to change. But all through chapters one, two, and three, Ruth and Naomi are active. They're involved in the story. They're speaking. They're talking. They're dialoguing. But when you get to chapter four, they kind of fade into the background. And it's a very unique transition because it reminds us that our redemption doesn't come from our participation. It comes simply because we are dependent upon the work of another. That redemption happens not because we are actively taking it and seizing it. Redemption is going to happen for these two women as they are kind of fading back in the background, looking to another who's going to show them kindness, looking to another who's going to pay the necessary price, looking to another who's going to redeem them. And so in chapter four, they're not very active. They're not talking a whole lot. Instead, they're just watching, saying, I'm in need of redemption. I can't redeem myself. I'm desperate for somebody else to come through for me. And then you get to Ruth chapter four, and that's exactly what happened. Because in Ruth chapter 4 is the story of how these two women are redeemed, and they are redeemed because someone outside of them showed them kindness. Somebody outside of them showed them charity, and that's where redemption comes from. Notice verse 1. Verse 1, verse one of Ruth chapter 4, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, that is kinsman redeemer in your translations perhaps, that Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat 
down. So coming out of chapter three, Boaz has told Naomi, look, I'm, gonna, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to act for your benefit. I'm going to act for your significance and to restore your security. And in chapter four, he begins to enact a plan that he has devised. And so in verse one, he positions himself at the beginning of the gate of the town and he sits there waiting. And then in kind of that Ruth uh, understated kind of way, the providence of God is at play. Because it says soon, he goes and he sits down and soon it just so happens that this family redeemer, that this kinsman redeemer was going to come by just at that time in that place and they were going to cross paths. It's another uh, subtle indication of the providence of God reminding us that God is always at work and he's usually working things behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. And so he goes and he sits down and this family or kinsman redeemer comes by. Now, I want you to underline that phrase, family or kinsman redeemer. This is the second time that phrase has showed up in this book. It showed up earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, because the concept of a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer, this concept shows us something about the heart of God. It shows us something about God being a God of redemption. And it shows us something about God being a God who redeems his people with the expectation that his redeemed people would turn into instruments of redemption. I'll give you a couple of examples. Earlier in the book of Leviticus, God would set up a system for his redeemed people to serve others in that way, to take care of people who have fallen on hard times, who are suffering and struggling through a loss of significance or a loss of security. And so he sets up a whole process for them to be cared for by his people by his redeemed people. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 24. Listen to what we read. Now remember the two things that, they, that are on the verge of being lost forever for Naomi and Ruth are land and lineage. Now this first talk about a kinsman redeemer concerns land, that first piece. Listen. It says, you are allowed the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no family redeemer, but he prospers and obtains enough to redeem his land, he may calculate the years since its sale, repay the balance to the man he sold it to, and return to his property. In other words, if you fall on hard times and you lose your land, your land can be redeemed. It can be restored. Security can come back. But then you move further in the Old Testament, you get to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and there we have this issue of lineage being dealt with, of significance being dealt with. And listen to what we read. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. It says her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relationships, relations with her, and, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out of Israel. Here at Lineage, his name is going to continue because of this provision. But notice verse 7. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders. Remove his sandal from his foot and get this, and spit in his face. 
How you like that? Take his shoe, spit in his face. What's going on there? Well, it's a picture of shame. It's this woman who's, who should be treated in a redemptive capacity and the one who's responsible to do so, this kinsman redeemer refusing to love and to serve her in that way, they deserve to be spit upon. This is a shameful moment because that kinsman redeemer isn't fulfilling their covenantal obligations. They aren't doing what God desires to them to do as his redeemed people. In other words, he's to be treated like a pig. If someone refuses, if a redeemed person refuses to engage in the ministry of redemption, they, it is a shameful thing. And then you go on, it says, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. Now, you come back to Ruth chapter four. You have land and lineage at play. This need of redemption is here. Boaz knows that there is a family redeemer in the land. There is a man who's close enough to the family to fulfill this redemptive role in their lives. But notice what happens when you pick up verse two. It says, then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. In other words, he's arranging a legal conversation to happen so an official transaction can occur. He brings the elders, they sit down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. So Boaz comes, he says, look, you have, this land is available to you. You're next up in line, you can redeem it. He hears that, and he's like, yeah, I want more land. Yeah, I want more security. I will redeem it. I will do it. But then Boaz throws him a curveball. Because Boaz has been withholding some information from him that's quite significant for this moment. And listen to what he, Boaz says next. He says in verse five, oh, and by the way, on the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man to perpetuate the man's name on his property. And then notice his response. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So here's what happens. You want land? Yeah, I want land. You want this Moabite female? No, I don't want that. I can't redeem that. It will jeopardize what I am going after. It's going to rupture the comfortable life that I've established for me and my family and the clear lineage that is present with me and my bride and me and my kids and the land going to them. And if I was going to get the land, I'd want the land if I could give it to my, the kids I already have. But if you're telling me I have to give that land to a Moabite's child, that, that's something I cannot do. And this man is unwilling to take that risk and to love in this sacrificial, other-oriented kind of way. And if you notice, his name isn't mentioned in this story, is it? It is significant that this man's name is not given to us in the story. All throughout the book of Ruth, names and places, details are given. So when you come to the point where a significant feature, a significant character isn't named, that anonymity is a sign of judgment. Because this man responded to his own redemption by living like a pig, so to speak, and not fulfilling his covenantal obligation and not doing what was expected of him by God's grace towards him, he's forgotten. And his name is not listed in the story. His name does not show up. He is forgotten. Why is that? 
Well, it's because he opted to live a common life in this moment. He opted to live a life that was familiar to the fallen human nature, a life that says, I'm gonna do what's best for me even if it isn't what's best for you. I'm gonna do what's best for me even if it means turning my back on your needs and on your, your lack of security and your lack of significance. He chose to be common in this moment. And because he was common in this moment, he was forgotten. And that's a huge word of warning to anyone who claims to be a redeemed son or daughter of God and yet can willfully and with eyes wide open turn their back upon others in need, others who need their sense of security, who need their sense of significance to be shored up in the gospel of God's grace. If we turn our back on that reality and we begin to live a common life, we are betraying the character of the very God who saved us. And this man in the story is unnamed. He is forgotten, but there was one man who isn't. There was one man who doesn't respond to the situation this way. There's one man named Boaz who steps up and he takes risks and he puts himself out there to redeem these two women and their situation. And, and so the, when the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, I will ruin, ruin my own inheritance, take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. And then we're given in verse seven this, this description of how things were kind of solidified, like contracts and legal transactions. And listen to it, it's kind of humorous. At an early point period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction of Israel. In other words, this was, if I was to take off my shoe and give it to you, to kind of seal the transition transaction of land purchase or anything like that. It was basically my way of saying I'm never going to tread on it again. It's yours. I'm going to give you my shoe. And so that's what's going on there. And then notice what happens. So the redeemer removed his sandal and gave it to Boaz saying, look, this land isn't mine anymore. You now have the right of redemption. And he says to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. So verse nine, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. In other words, you are seeing how their security and their significance is being shored up. This, this family is being redeemed by Boaz, the redeemer. Now, for Boaz to do this, there were three qualifications for Boaz to meet if he was to be the redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. First, if he was to be the redeemer, he must possess the right to redeem. This is why he had to give the other guy first dibs because the other guy had the right of redemption. So he had to at least give him the choice, and so that's why he sets up this conversation and this transaction, but then when the guy's, no, I don't want it because that, that Moabitess is involved and I don't want to be a part of that, he steps up, says, okay, now it's my turn, and he's given the right to redeem. But not only must he have the right to redeem, in order to make this transaction happen, he's got to have the resources to redeem. And we know that Boaz was a resourceful man. He was a man that already owned property in the land. He was a man of wealth and means. And so he was able to make this purchase because he had the resources to do so. And he had the resources, it seems, to support this family, this new addition into his life. But not only must he have the right and the resources to redeem, the redeemer must have the resolve to redeem. They must be willing to carry out their commitment all the way to the end. 
So there needs to be resolve. There needs to be desire. Well, either one or both of these last two were missing in the unnamed man's life. Either he didn't have the resources, which is unlikely. Chances are he just didn't have the resolve. He didn't want to step into this type of situation. But Boaz is a different kind of guy. He's cut from a different cloth. Earlier in Ruth chapter 2, he's described as a man of loving kindness, of hesed. And what's interesting about that is that hesed, loving kindness, is one of the most common descriptions of God's character in all of the Old Testament. So what you find in Boaz is a tangible expression of the character of God in the world. You have a man who's willing to show loving kindness in a situation that was quite risky, in a situation that could in some ways backfire, in a situation that would certainly sully his reputation amongst others who shared the same perspective of Ruth as the unnamed kinsman redeemer. You have this man who's exercising loving kindness, reflecting the character of God. And because of that, redemption comes to Naomi and Ruth. Their security is restored. Their significance is ratified. It's 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 regained. And as you consider the nature of their redemption in this moment, you begin to see how redemption does change everything. There's a progression to Ruth's identity in this story that you cannot miss. Ruth, at the beginning of the story, is referred to as, Mo, as the Moabitess. In fact, that shows up many times throughout this book. She's, she's known by that definition. But not only is she referred to as the Moabitess, she's referred to as the foreigner. She's referred to as the slave. She's referred to as the servant. But when you get to chapter 4, verse 10, what is she referred to as? She's referred to as the wife. This redemptive act is changing everything for her. Her identity is changing in the most remarkable way. She's no longer being viewed by Boaz as an outsider or as someone to be held at arm's length or as a slave or a servant. She's being embraced by Boaz in a familial relationship. She becomes his wife. And notice how people respond in verse 11. It says, all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well-known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, the son Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. They're blessing Ruth in a way that is not unlike the way Elizabeth blessed Mary in Luke chapter 2. It's very similar, this word of blessing upon this woman who's been taken in in this way and treated with such love and kindness. But then you pick up verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she, gave, she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord, get this, the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. Now, this is only the second time in the whole book that the Lord's name is mentioned. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, we're told that the Lord made the food come back to Bethlehem. And here we're told that the Lord is causing this child to grow in Ruth's womb. What we're being cued into those two moments when the Lord goes to work in an explicit fashion, we're reminded that the Lord is the one who meets our deepest needs. The Lord is the one who is always at work to shore up our security and to shore up our significance that the Lord meets the deepest needs of the human heart and of the human life. And so you find him doing that. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Now, all those pronouns are referring to her child. It's referring to what's going to come from the son that's in her womb. And then he goes on. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And Naomi, I love how verse 16 rolls. Naomi took the child, placed him in her lap, and became his nanny. Now, this is a, this is a far cry from where Naomi's story begins in the, in the book. Remember how Naomi was describing herself in Ruth chapter one. I am bitter. I am empty. The Lord has left me without significance. The Lord has left me without security. And here in this moment, this child that was born to Ruth through her marriage to Boaz, this child is placed on her lap and suddenly she's seeing her, her, her life has been made full once again. That the Lord has not forsaken her. It's a beautiful picture. Now, if Ruth was a movie, this would be the, great, the, the best image to end it on. The baby being put in her lap and the screen going black and everybody's cool, but that's not where the story ends. The story keeps going. There's a few more verses written and if we stop with the baby in her lap, we're gonna miss the point of the whole book of Ruth and what it's really driving after. So as this child is placed in Naomi's lap, notice what says in verse 17. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. So that's the child's name. But notice who he is. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, what's happening there is that the book of Ruth, remember, it takes place in the period of the judges. The period of the judges was a time when there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But the book of Ruth tells us that during that whole time, God was at work prepping the world for his king to come prepping his world for King David's lineage, King David's line to be established that would later lead to his birth. And so that when you step over into verse 18, this is exactly what you see happens. You have this lineage that leads us to David. It says, now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And David would go on to become the greatest king in Israel's history. But there's more. You might find it strange to see a book ending with a lineage, wondering, well, that's that's kind of a downer. That's not really a drop the mic kind of moment and walk away or to close a book. But if you think of that about how a book ends, you might have the same impression about beginning a book with that type of thing. Starting a book with a lineage doesn't seem very uh, provocative. It doesn't really grab your attention. But when you come to the Gospel of Matthew and you step into the New Testament, that's exactly how Matthew begins. The Gospel of Matthew starts with a lineage, and in that lineage, you're going to find these same names present there. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. There it is. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And then right after that, you're going to see a whole a long list of other names and other generations leading all the way up to the birth of the Messiah leading all the way up to the birth of our Redeemer, Jesus the Christ. 
The book of Ruth isn't a story told in a vacuum. The book of Ruth is a story told on a remarkable plane of redemption as God is working out his plan to restore the significance of fallen humanity, to restore the security of fallen humanity, all coming in and through our redeemer, Jesus the Christ. The book of Ruth moves that ball further downfield. And so you think about Jesus the Christ, our true redeemer, the one to whom Boaz points in Ruth chapter four. Remember what, what a redeemer needed in order to redeem. Remember those three qualifications, and I want you to think about them in light of who Jesus is. We said that a redeemer must have the right to redeem, right? Well, surely Jesus has the right to redeem, doesn't he? After all, we were created in his image. We were created by him and for him. We are ultimately belong to him and are accountable to him. So when he sees us fall, when he sees us in sin, when he sees us suffering, when he sees us dying, surely it is his right to redeem his people. And then you consider who Jesus the Christ is, born of a virgin, living a fully human life of obeying his father Getting to the moment where he can say, look, Father, I'm going I'm to save some people and bring them to you. I want you to receive them. It's my right to do so. That's what he's praying for in John chapter 17. Jesus had the right to redeem us. But not only did he have the right to redeem us, he had the resources to redeem us. He could pay the price that was needed to be paid in order for our redemption to occur. This Jesus who would live his life affirming the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him so that he had authority over sin. Therefore, he could tell people, your sins are forgiven. He had authority over sickness. Therefore, he could say, hey, look, be healed. He had authority over suffering. Therefore, he could comfort those who were hurting. He had authority over death. Therefore, he could say, Lazarus, get out of the tomb. He had authority over every inch and aspect of the human condition. He had all authority to redeem. That's some type of resource. He had the resources to redeem. But just imagine if Jesus was like the unnamed redeemer in this story who had the right and who had the resources but then chose not to do anything with them. What if he said, yeah, people are too sinful, people are too broken, people are too jacked up, people are too diverse, people are too weird, and and decided just to kind of sit back and not act on his right and leverage his resources. You and I would be in a tough spot. But fortunately, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus possesses the resolve to redeem. This is why when he steps into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's weeping sweat drops of blood, wondering about what he's going to experience on the cross when his life goes there, he's able to say to his father, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done in this moment. And he, and he devoted himself to the will of his father, even if the will of his father intended upon his sacrifice and his death. And we're not just talking about a physical death. We're talking about a spiritual anguish. We're talking about Jesus satisfying the wrath of his father, dying on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and our redemption could be secured. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus would show this type of resolve. It's especially remarkable when you consider you're not as attractive as Ruth was back in the day. Spiritually speaking, we're not like Ruth. We're not an attractive lady working in the fields who catches a guy's eye. No, we are told in Ephesians chapter two that we are enemies of God, that we reject God, that we are hostile to God, that we don't like God, we don't listen to God, and yet God looked it upon us and he resolved to redeem us despite us. 
It's a remarkable thing to consider the resolve of Jesus and the redemption that you see illustrated in Ruth's life is the same redemption that's illustrated in our lives so that all of a sudden we're no longer foreigners. We're no longer alienated from God. We're no longer slaves of sin. All of a sudden we are brought into the beautiful bride of Christ. We are brought into his people and he calls us his loving us and cherishing us, changing our identity, assuring us of security and significance all the days of our lives. Redemption changes everything. And as this type of redemption begins to give shape to your life, you're gonna find yourself living and loving differently. You're gonna find yourself changing in ways that showcases the character of your God in ways that showcases the redemption of your God so that you would be instruments of redemption in this world, looking to minister to other people the way Boaz would minister to Naomi and Ruth, looking to put yourself out there so that you might assure someone of their security and you might assure someone of their significance in Christ. Redemption changes everything. It changes our identity. It changes our approach to life. And as you consider the way Ruth's story ends with this redemptive climax, you you can rest assured that whatever you're going through in your life right now, however insecure you may feel, however insignificant you may seem, this, this story, this story that anticipates Advent, it assures us that all of our stories will ultimately end well. The book of Ruth ends incredibly well. And the story of your life will end well. Let's pray.